Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 12th, 2016. This is episode 1868 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a really full agenda for you guys today. I'm going to talk about my completed weekend project, From Wicking Bed to Aquaculture. I'm going to talk about how automation is replacing jobs you never would have thought of, including journalists, and that's already been done. Um, you know, 40% of the articles written by, in the New York Times are now written by computer. Yeah, what do you hear some of this stuff? It'll blow you away. I'm going to have a listener story of 9-11, and I want to kind of point out that it's one of about 250 million-plus stories like it and ask you to share yours on the blog. I want to talk about the blind patriotism around events like 9-11 because of an email that came in that kind of points that out and things like, you know, Colin Kaepernick or football players not standing and I'll break your legs if you don't stand and just the, 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 the idiocracy that has been built around patriotism. Um, grilling without stressing over HCAs and other things that can cause cancer and gee, that charcoal's going to kill you type of uh, thinking and why it's not really the case. And what you can do to make all your grilling, whether it's charcoal or not, more healthy. Um, I got a question from a guy that, uh, that services water heaters that I have no idea how to answer or if there's any good answer to it at all, but I'm going to throw it out there and you guys can let me know. Uh, best way to, about, to test learning other than conventional exams. If you wanted to actually evaluate someone's ability uh, after learning things, how would you best do so? Um, next, uh, college sports, are they the doom? Or salvation when it comes to the student loan bubble popping. Um, also, new job title out there, infrastructure automation engineer. Yeah, it's happening faster than I think people realize. And a new study shows, on that same note, half of all managers in America are not necessary. I bet some of you out there have managers that you can pretty much tell are not necessary. And I'll tell you why, that sometimes the ones you don't think are necessary may be the most necessary of all. And some of the other ones may be Why they're there in the first place is kind of surprising. Um, last, we have a uh, story from a listener, uh, a vaccination story. A child that was vaccinated and what happened afterward. And it's just what happened and it just makes you think and it makes you um, maybe a little bit more open to being careful about how you, you deal with situations out there in the world today when it comes to your children. Uh, not a scare story, but just just a story. All that and more in just a minute. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Hey folks, when I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was Safecastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with Safecastle, I do mean everything. Check out safecastle.com today to learn more. 
Next up, let's take the take a look at the year that was the episode. Uh, I've got three for you from uh, Alex Shrug today. I have the first impeachment of a president, and that's Andrew Johnson. We also have Grant disavows General Order 11, and we have the last public hanging and the first private one. And in other news, Decoration Day is established. The northern states commemorate, commemorate fallen troops by decorating their graves. The South is already doing this. The holidays will eventually merge into National Memorial Day. Emperor Majiha, Majedi, I don't know how to say his name, Miji, establishes Japan's first constitution, a path toward modernization. Also, the city of Ido is renamed Tokyo, meaning Eastern Capital. A technical bonanza, the first traffic light, color photo prints on paper, And electrical voting machine is patented. The light traffic light blows up a month later. The voting machine is patented by Thomas Edison. Maybe he can fix the light. All right. So lots of stuff happened. First color photo prints on paper in the year 1868. It must have been very expensive because I have a, a whole lot of family pictures uh, from the, the 40s and 50s that are all black and white. Anyway, um, let's look at the last public hanging, the first private one. I was going to read uh, the first impeachment because there's a lot of history there, but uh, I just came with some thoughts on this that I thought I'd like to share, so I'm going to choose this one instead. Michael Barrett is the last man to be hanged as a public spectacle. His crime was his part in Clerkwell Explosion, in which Irish Republican Brotherhood used gunpowder to collapse a wall and clerk in prison. The idea was to free one of their fellows. In fact, 12 people were killed and none of the prisoners escaped shortly after Mr. Barrett's hanging. The UK Parliament prohibits public hangings. Executions will now take place behind the walls of prison and the body buried on the grounds of the prison. The first to be privately hanged is 18-year-old Thomas Wells for the murder of Edward Walsh, the station master at Dover Priory Railway Station. My take by Alex Shrug. The debate over public education comes up on occasion. The last time I recall a big debate was when Gary Gilmore was executed by firing squad in 1977. He'd been convicted of murdering a gas station attendant and a motel manager in Utah. As it turned out, the U.S. Supreme Court had just allowed capital punishment after keeping on hold for a number of years. Gilmore demanded to be put to death by firing squad. It became a zoo and vet as vendors began selling T-shirts with targets printed on them. The talk about the execution approached the ridiculous when Saturday Night Live performed a skit and a song called Let's Kill Gary Gilmore for Christmas. In history, capital punishment was a public event, bloody drawn out for days with lots of screaming. It didn't deter many people. If one is arguing for public education as a deterrent, I'm not seeing it. If one is arguing capital punishment is proper and just punishment, then there's no need for it to be a public execution. You can carry out the sentence in private. Most people would be deterred by the executions, would, who would be deterred by the executions, would be deterred simply by knowing that they occur. They don't have to see them in public. So I got a few things on this. Number one, I agree that execution, especially public execution, has never really been a great deterrent to the crimes that are capital crimes for those that would not have been deterred by the thought of being executed, whether public or private. I have no doubt about that being accurate. I also don't know that execution as a form of punishment has ever been that great of a deterrent overall to people who would commit crimes that are serious enough to warrant execution in the minds of the at least somewhat rational person. So there was times in history where you could have said the wrong thing and got your head cut off by a king or something, and that's outside of, of what we're talking about here. So 
I don't know that even the death penalty is that great of a deterrent for those who would do the things that would get you the death penalty in anything approaching a civilized society. The function of the death penalty to me is that if you are a person who cannot be redeemed and is dangerous to your fellow man, there is no sense in us paying for your existence for the rest of your life. So let's make your life relatively short. That That's... That's kind of the, the point. It's it's not even so much as a justice thing, in my opinion. It's this that you have a person here who will never be released into society that we ha have determined could never be considered safely released into society ever again, and they're going to spend the rest of their life in prison. So as a service to, to society, we eliminate this person instead of uh, have to see to their needs and provide for them for 50, 60, 70 years. Um That said, I am I, I was at one time a serious proponent of the death penalty. I, at this point in my life, am not a proponent of the death penalty in the United States because I do not trust the system of justice that prescribes the sentence. There have been too many people released who have been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt to be not guilty, and I have yet to hear a single DA say, I'm sorry, we made a mistake. They've always justified it and said, I still believe this guy needs to be executed. We had enough evidence. Well, you just got evidence, DNA, for instance, that it wasn't the guy. That's not enough for you to say you were wrong. So a, a system run that way, um, where enough evidence to convince 12 people that you're right is proof that you're right, even when you're shown that you're wrong, um, and mishandling of evidence, I just don't trust the state with the, with the, the authority to kill people anymore. I just don't. Okay, you can disagree with that, but I'm not disagreeing with it in principle. I'm disagreeing with our government being responsible enough to carry out executions. And if you disagree with that, are they responsible enough in the way they spend your money? Are they responsible enough in the way that they handle your constitutional rights? Those of you who are fervent you know, uh, supporters of the death penalty in America just said no twice. Well, if they're not responsible with your money and they're not responsible with your rights, why would you think they're responsible enough to trust with somebody else's life? See, it's not again, it's not the principle, it's the reality of the situation. So that's that's my take there. Now, as far as public executions, I agree with Alex that they they probably weren't that effective as a deterrent to true capital crimes, you know. They were never meant to be. That's not what governments did them. Governments didn't crucify people or put people up on a pike uh, or, or you know disembowel people and make them beg for mercy before they got their head cut off or any other or set them aflame and, 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 and have them breathe in flame and scald their lungs and scream as they die. They didn't do any of those things to prevent others from doing what they did, really. No, they did them to make the people fear the state. That's what public executions have always been about. And that's what incarceration is generally about. It's not about rehabilitation. It's not about helping society. It's not about prevention. And you can look at the, re the recidivism rate. You can see that if it was about, you know, rehabilitation or prevention, that those numbers shouldn't be where they are. And we have a freaking industry in this country in, in just incarcerations. It's, it's an incredible industry. It's trillion dollar industry in keeping people locked up and forcing them to do work. We used to call it slavery. And a system that when a person enters it, for any crime that actually sends them to prison, getting out of that system and ever actually having a life again is almost impossible, and that leads to recidivism. 
But incarceration in our country has taken the place of execution, public executions in, you know, past history as being something to make you afraid of the state. You must comply. Look what they could do to you. Even if they wouldn't go that far, if they're capable of that, they're capable of harming you. The more things change, the more they stay the same. My take by Jack Spierko. And with that, uh, let's get into today's show. I have uh, wanted to give you guys an update on what happened this weekend. A really short one, but I, I mentioned Friday that I was seriously considering tearing out my wicking beds and turning them into three ponds. That was done, and it worked out really well. It was uh, it was an interesting weekend to do the work. I woke up on Saturday morning. It had rained Saturday night. It was still sprinkling, but... It was beautiful out, and I did the hardest part of the work on Saturday, which was mostly pulling everything out of the wicking bed. So it was, you know, a, 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 almost a yard of soil, maybe a half a yard of stone uh, that all had to be shoveled out of these beds. I had to take the whole wall apart. I had to deplumb everything, uh, dig trenches, and run new piping, and then gluing everything up. And all that happened on Sunday. And I woke up Sunday, and it was like, oh. It was just beautiful. I, I walked out the door. It was like 7 o'clock in the morning, and it was actually cold. I mean, not freezing cold, but cold enough that you're like, I could wear, I'm not going to, but I could wear a jacket. Um, it was so beautiful that I went and told my wife, I know you want to sleep in today, but it might be worth, she's like, I got up and let the dog out at 5. I felt it already. I'm like, okay, whatever. And uh, so I got my tea, and I just walked the yard for a little bit and enjoyed it. So I thought this is going to be another great day for working. Um, by like 8.30, I had sweat just dripping off my body. Um, just soaked and just tired. And uh, about 2 o'clock, Dorothy came out and decided to give me a hand. She had taken our grandson home. And uh, I it was almost done then, but she helped with uh, bringing a couple loads of rock in for the drain pit that we put in and, and some other things. We got it all finished up. And then it was just... You know, drinking a beer or two, uh, I'm not going to lie, it was three because it took a long time, and watching it fill up. And uh, this morning, you know, I, once I got it all full, it was kind of cloudy. I turned out everything on. I got everything balanced as far as the flow rates, and, like, I hope it works. I went out there this morning, and the water levels are all exactly where I set them the night before. Everything's working perfectly. I went out twice in the evening with a flashlight looking at it to make sure I didn't have one side overflowing or something. Um and Dorothy's like, why? I'm like, because it worked exactly the way I planned it. And I never trust anything that works exactly the way that I planned it. But it's it's in place now. Um, putting in about seven, six inches, I'd say, of gravel and lava rock in the bottoms of those tanks. They are six foot by two foot by two foot um, oval stock tanks. Uh, probably reduce the total water volume. Now, there's there's a lot more water in there than you would think because there's a lot of water in the rocks, right? Um, and I'll tell you about where some other water is in a second. Um, but probably I'm like 120 to 150 gallons of water uh, that fish can swim in that's accessible to them. Uh, so that's that's a great holding tank for smaller fish that you're growing to a larger size. Now, underneath that gravel is 4-inch uh, corrugated perforated drain pipe uh, in a T configuration. If you saw how we did the wicking beds, it's basically the same pipes went back in there. And that kept a nice big hollow opening down there and a wonderful habitat for biologics. And it also keeps like the gravel and all from shifting and plugging up the, the exit hole on the tanks. 
because um, the, the, the T is pushed right up against there, and there's, you know, 200 pound of rock holding it there. It's not going anywhere. Uh, I think we'd have an earthquake and the, the building would fall down before the pipe came loose there. So that's all set up and ready to roll. The other thing we're going to be doing is putting a half hoop uh, of cattle panels up over it so we can put some 60% shade cloth on it, keep it nice and cool. Right now I have it kind of shaded in. I'll also be insulating it. Uh, so there's a playlist. I've done three videos showing the beginning, the middle, and the the initial end and my plans, and it's all on the blog today. You can look it up and take a look at it. I have a playlist set up for it, and I have a link to the playlist in the in the, in the article. And if you uh, subscribe to that playlist, every time I do something to this part of this system, I'll be adding it to that playlist. So I think this is going to be a cool conversion, and I'm already planning more pond-based systems. I, I, I have determined uh, in all the time that we've been here that our, our bang for the buck here is trees for fruit and, and nuts, it's ducks for uh, wildlife production, um, and it's aqua, aquatic systems. The, those three have been able to produce for us much more steadily and reliably than annual vegetation. So even annual vegetables work better in those systems. So I'm, I'm going to try to see what we can really do and push the envelope a little bit with it. And it gives us more of a protein yield, which is important to me because I try to eat a high-protein, moderate-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. So anyway, just want to kind of update you on that. So next up, I have... Uh, a, a pretty interesting article here. This comes to me from Josh. Josh says, 40% of New York Times articles are now written by algorithms. Um, and this, uh, this, this story is actually from the New York Times. I wonder, because it doesn't say, uh, I wonder if a, a, uh, a computer wrote this article. Um, because it's not really long. It's just a, like a little quiz more than anything else. And it says, it's on Sunday Review. And I'll have a link to it. It says, did a human or a computer write this? A shocking amount of what you're reading is not created by humans, but by computer algorithms. Can you tell the difference? Take the quiz. March. This is from March 7th, 2015. Holy crap, I didn't even realize that when I when I read this article. So I wonder how far along they are, you know, another year, plus, half, you, you know, later. Okay, I'm going to read it. And you answer for yourself whether you think the, this is written by a computer or a human, and then I'll tell you the answer after a couple of seconds. So, a shallow magnitude 4.7 earthquake was reported Monday morning, five miles from Westwood, California. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the tumbler occurred at 6.25 a.m. Pacific time at a depth of 5.0 miles. Do you think a human wrote that or a computer wrote that? A computer wrote that. So that one probably doesn't surprise you because it's very factually based and all. So I'm going to tell you, they mix it up here a bit. Uh, number two, Apple's holiday earnings for 2014 were record-shattering. The company earned an $18 billion profit on a $74.6 billion revenue. That profit was more than any company had ever earned in history. Was that written by a human or by a computer? I know what you're thinking. Well, that's all facts and statistics. That was written by a, a human, right? Uh, yes, or I mean a computer right now. It was written by a human. This is an article from Business Insider, and it was written by a human being. Okay, next one. When I, in dreams, behold thy fairest shade, whose shade in dreams doth wake the sleeping morn, the daytime shadow of my love betrayed lends hideous lends hideous night to dreaming, dreaming's faded form. 
Computer or human? Computer. This is an excerpt of a poem written by a poetry application. It was written by a computer. A computer said, When I in dreams behold thy fairest shade, whose shade in dreams doth wake the sleeping morn. Yep. Um, next one. Benner had a good game at the plate for Hamilton Ash. For, for, I can't read the guy's name. For, for Hamilton A's. Um, Benner went two of three, drove in one, and scored one run. Benner singled in the third inning and doubled in the fifth inning. Human or computer? <clears throat> This was written by a computer. This was a sample report done by Quill, a narrative science product. Okay. How about this one? Kitty couldn't fall asleep for a long time. Her nerves were strained as two tight strings, and even a glass of hot wine that Vronsky made her drink did not help her. Lying in bed, she kept going over and over that monstrous scene at the meadow. Written by a human or a computer? It was written by a computer. From the Russian novel True Love was written by a computer in St. Petersburg in 72 hours. Six. <clears throat> Tuesday was a great day for W. Roberts as the junior pitcher threw a perfect game to carry Virginia to a 2-0 victory over George Washington at Davenport Field. Written by a human or computer, what do you think? Written by a computer, the story was written by narrative science software program led with the University of Virginia's pitcher's perfect game, while one human story did not. Okay. Number seven. I was laid out sideways on a soft American van seat, several young men still plying me with the vodkas I had dutifully drank, because for a Russian, it is simply impolite to refuse. Written by a human or by a computer? By a human. Unlike True Love, this novel was written by a human. It's an excerpt from Gary Shignai's Absurdistan. Okay, so uh, they try to trick you there by throwing Russian in, I think. Okay, eight. In truth, I'd love to build some verse for you. To churn such a, such verse a billion times a day. So type a new concept for me to chew. I'll keep all, all waiting long. I hope you stay. That was written by a computer. The ironic thing is it is a poem written by a computer about an auto-writing bot. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's starting to look like even journalism, especially conventional journalism, Is, is not really a valid career option in the future. It, it, it just isn't. It, it just keeps coming in more and more ways. Um, this next one is a story from a listener. Of course, today is um, 9-12. So yesterday was 9-11, the day America remembers. And uh, so, But I don't do a show on Sunday, so I thought I would share a little bit about this today. And I have a, a kind of really important point to make after I'm, I'm done reading uh, Benjamin's story. But he just sends me an email, um, and he sent it to a lot of other people too. So I don't know if he meant it for the show, but I don't think he'll mind me reading it because um, I see a bunch of other people on the list, and I'm not giving his last name. I never do that unless somebody asks me to. Anyway, it says... Uh, Remembering 9-11-2001, approximately 7.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Senior year of high school, perhaps fittingly, I was headed north on Des Moines Memorial Drive in my 85 Honda Accord hatch, 
My usual search for music on the car's radio was aggravated by an excessive amount of talking. I did not stick on any one station long enough to take in anything because anything being said until I reached 200th Street when I approximately 16 blocks from home. It reached me. World Trade Center 2 has collapsed. What is a World Trade Center? I thought. My fingers abandoned their search for music and my car and my ears opened fully. Reports of morning event, morning's events filled my car and began to consume me. For the next 10 minutes, I listened intently to the announcements being made. By this time, those reporting the scenes of New York could, confident, could confidently report were under attack. At approximately 7.45, I arrived at my typical coffee fill-up point, the deli near the high school. As I pulled in, I saw my best friend Caleb standing alongside his truck in the parking lot. I sped to the parking place and stopped, hopped out and proclaimed, They got us. After some discussion, we made our way to the school and threaded the hallways of our classroom, to our classroom. As we entered, our young souls bore witness as World Trade One fell. Our world would never be the same. The memories of that day end there. I cannot remember more. The next uh, and nearly only memory I have of those days comes from September 12th. I stared at the front page of Seattle Times which showed a man leaping from the World Trade Center as he escaped flames that would have otherwise surely brought upon a slow and unimaginably painful death. The image remains burned into my memory as clear as the day I saw it. How despite, how desperate I thought must a person be. At the time of the 9-11 attacks, I didn't realize that my father was airborne. He was in mid-flight from Spokane International to Las Vegas. My dad was among those who would be part of history, one of nearly 5,000 planes that would be ordered to land at the nearest airport, the first and, and to date only call for all domestic air travel to be grounded. He shared a rental car with another flyer from Boise back to Spokane. Some children of flying parents that day were not so lucky. Fifteen years later, I still cry for those lost and for one of the darkest days in our nation's history. Every 9-11 anniversary reminds me of just how precious and finite life is. It should serve as a reminder to all of us that nothing is certain, and we should all live for the now. Don't take anything for granted. And uh, this is from Ben. Okay, so here's, here's my thought on this. No matter what you think about 9-11 as far as to the why or how it happened, we all share it, and we all share a story very much like this one. I've told my story. I'll tell the, the short version of it now. But I, I too, was airborne on 9-11. Um, my plane did land. I have no idea to this date whether or not it was related to any kind of chatter across the airwaves. But we did a touch-and-go at, at Pittsburgh International Airport. The plane touched, powered up immediately, and took back off. In, uh, in all my years of travel, I spent about 15 years heavily traveling for my career. Uh, I did two touch-and-goes. That was one of them. So it could have been, but it was very weird coincidence. Um, I got off the plane. I went down to get my luggage. My bag was the first bag out. It was almost like I walked in. The bag came out like it never goes that well. I walked out. My sales rep was waiting for me. I jumped in a van with him. We went off to do our you know, deals and, and go visit customers, and we heard immediately then uh, that a plane had just hit uh, World Trade Center. And uh, we we didn't think it was anything serious. We thought it was a small aircraft, and, in fact, that's how it was being reported. Then the second, then the Pentagon. When the Pentagon got hit, uh, my rep named Matt turned to me and said, you know what this means, right? I said, yeah, it means we're at war. We called and canceled all our appointments. Matt took me to my hotel. Uh, there was a, a, a TV set in the kind of like the common area. So we sat there and watched TV just to find out what was going on. And um, he, uh, 
you know, we were standing there and we're watching and um, the first tower comes down and we decided, you know, he's like, you know, you're here, you're supposed to be riding with me, so you didn't even have a vehicle. He called his family, made sure they were all okay, and um, we decided to go get something to eat and uh, we walked in and, of course, everybody's glued to TV set and as we walked in, the second tower came down. Um I, I, much like Ben here, I will never forget the images. I'll never forget what happened. I'll never forget where I was. I'll never forget talking to my wife on the phone as she was crying because she's so you know empathic. I'll never forget my son as just a young kid, not even a teenager really yet, asking me if a war could come here. Um, and, and the fear in his voice, I'll never forget any of it. And I, I think that what we need to understand is... This country was unified when that happened in a very positive way. Now, I'm going to talk about in a second how that was immediately used against us by our government. Whether they had anything to do with it or not happening, they did use it, and they're still using it. But for at least a week, people were nice to each other. For at least a week. Um, I think it was because it was more personal. It was very personal for me. My territory was the Northeast. New York City was part of my, my sales territory. I had people that I knew. I wouldn't call them really close friends, but people that I knew that died that day um, at, at World Trade Center. Um, and my sales reps had a lot more people that they knew that died than the few that I knew that died. Um, and the companies that I worked with, even if I didn't know the people, you know, I had one company that lost 19 of their workers. These were people that basically pulled wire and cable in, in, in buildings. But they just happened to be on a job at the wrong floor on that day, and they didn't make it out. They weren't, you know, they, they it, it, people think, I think, of World Trade Center, and they think it was all like executives and business people and all. But there were tons of people that worked there that, you know, were the maid or whatever. Their lives were just as valuable and, and, and lost. And we all knew somebody, or at least knew somebody that knew somebody. And we all took it very, very personally. And then the way that it happened made it very personal. And it, it, it brought to us an understanding that life is precious. Because it's not the biggest loss of life we've ever heard of. There's been disasters since 9-11 that, that were, more people died in. Um, look at the Haitian earthquake, for instance. Those people's lives are not less valuable because they're Haitian versus American. But in this case, we all knew it was something that didn't have to happen. That made it worse as well. And it was one of the most beautiful days in the country weather-wise. I think that contrast made it... I mean, I remember standing after I you know, had... Uh, come out of this this restaurant that that my sales rep and I had had luncheon, and looking at the sky and thinking this is like got to be one of the most beautiful days. What a horrible thing to happen on such a beautiful day! And I remember then thinking, my hotel is only ten minutes from the airport, and the skies were quiet. So. I was supposed to be there for three days, and like uh, like Ben's uh, father, I ended up having to rent a car to get home, which wasn't even that easy to do. But we had a really good travel coordinator who reminded Hertz Rent-A-Car how much business we did with them every year, and all of a sudden they shit a one-way rental. Um, and it was a it was an interesting drive home because my car was actually at Philadelphia Airport, um, so I I wanted to be with my family, so I drove directly home. 
And Philadelphia Airport was a little over an hour away from my house. So the next day, uh, we, I went down and turned in the rental car at Philly Airport and picked up my car. It was uh, a day, it was a week that will live, you know, with me. And then it was about a week and a half or so into this that we had a, a major uh, trade show that we had to do um, in Connecticut. So I drove right up by 95. I drove up by 95 and I looked across the river at New York City and I looked at smoke still coming from the city. And I remember an acridness to the air in my car with the windows closed and the air conditioning on that my throat burned across the river from where this happened. And when I hear today people that say that they were rescuers and that they got sick, they got cancer, they died, and the government says it's not what happened and it won't help them, I think bullshit because I know if that's what that was like, you know, I don't remember if it was eight days or nine days or two weeks. It was hard. It all blends together, like Ben said in his email. Uh, that I, But I just remember if, if that was what I tasted that far away from ground zero, then what the guys that charged in there to help went through and what all the people that were just there went through as far as toxins has to be unbelievable. I've had that feeling one other time in my life, that taste. I don't mean the sphere, I mean the taste, the acridness. Uh, I used to do cable TV work, and we used to uh, do private cable systems for uh, apartment complexes. And we you build what's called a head end. There's a whole bunch of electronics in there that, I won't get into it, but it's how you actually take satellite signal and deliver it to hundreds of TVs, thousands of TVs, and everybody can change the channel. There's uh, three or four boxes for every channel that's on your TV when you build them this way. And an air conditioner had gone out. We didn't know that. We just knew that there was channels starting to drop off and service starting to drop off. So our boss sent us out there, and we get there, and we immediately see that the air conditioner is not running. And uh, we open the uh, door of the head end, and it was the exact same taste. I recognized it instantly when I tasted it, uh, you know, that in 2001, driving past uh, New York City on I-95 from across the river. It was the same exact thing. It was burning electronics. I'll never forget. I think that our generations that lived through it all will be ever forever bonded by that commonality of remembering that one thing so well. And I would like to invite you to share your stories of where you were um, on the blog today. And I'll, I'll save uh, the ending segment, uh, the song that I'm going to play today, uh, to talk a little bit more about that. But sharing our stories is what bonds us together. And it's why we need to do more sharing of stories about not just the worst day that we can remember, but some of the best days that we can remember. Human beings are not meant to be controlled the way that we are today. We're meant to be more like hunter-gatherer societies. And I believe we could be very hunter-gatherer-like with modern civilization. And what I mean by that is we're meant to exist in groups. We are meant to share stories. We are meant to bond over stories. So let us as a community at Survival Podcast bond over this story and Hopefully, we'll bond over more positive stories as well in the future. Now, I uh, you know, said that there is an abuse of this. So let me read you the next one. This comes from Pat. 
says, Hey, Jack, I'm really glad I have the TSP to li- TSPC to listen to. It helps me vent, uh, knowing we are a community of critical thinkers. Nothing like 9-11 Facebook posts showing all the patriotism, pictures, and tweets. Stand for the national anthem or I'll break your legs, say people supporting the USA and freedom. Am I only one taking crazy pills? Thanks for the inoculation, Jack. Cue the circus music. Your Leo friend from Florida, Pat. Well, Pat, thank you for your service. I'm sure you're one of the good guys if you can listen to my show and not want to uh, use your service uh, weapon to shoot yourself in the head. So anyway, um, yeah, let's talk about this. The you know, I, I bet that's a real statement. You better stand for the national anthem, or I'll break your legs. Hey, we, this nation's all about freedom. How dare you exercise it? This this ignorance is unbelievable. And the way that 9-11 has been linked to patriotism in such a way that if you question anything connected to it, you're attacked violently, in fact, is, is clearly the, the, the plan of our government, but it's been carried out by our people. Our people are, are the ones that are carrying it out. They've been so perfectly brainwashed for so many generations that if somebody says something like, hey, maybe we shouldn't still be in Afghanistan. Don't you remember 9-11? Well, yeah, I think we all do. We all have a story. Um, but if, if we're not making our nation safer by what we're doing and we're hurting people, maybe we shouldn't be still there 15 years later. Oh, you're you're one of them commies or something like that, you know. You better stand or I'll break your legs. These nonsensical slogans, you know. America, love it or leave it. That's not the way America works. That's not the way America works. If it was, then America would be nothing special. And 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 to 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 run your mouth about freedom in one sentence and in the very next sentence attack somebody for exercising freedom. Because they choose not to stand for what all intents and purposes truly is a hem to the state. A hem to the state. The national anthem, I used to be so patriotic about the national anthem. I, I, I was a guy that, you know, you, you bet I would stand. I put my hand over my heart and I, I felt emotion when I heard that song. So I understand the anger. Today, I don't not stand for the national anthem. I, I, I look at it like a, a, a just a, a mutual respect thing, okay? If I'm at an event, the national anthem plays, I stand up for it. But it's just like if I was at your house and you decided to say a prayer of a faith that I don't share, I'd bow my head and keep my mouth shut and be respectful of your prayer because it means something to you. So I, I do kind of think people that don't stand to make a point are kind of being asshats, but I'm not going to attack them for it. I don't like to hold it against them. I don't really think it's that important. And, and it's not. And you've been convinced that it is. I'm not, I know not all of you have, but, but, but most of this country, we've been convinced that like it's some great crime against humanity if somebody sits down during a song. You know? I mean, but people fought for, fought for that song. They didn't fight for that song. They fought for your freedom to either stand or sit, to sing or remain silent. I'll tell you a story not not too long ago. It's probably about a year ago, I guess. I flipped out at a guy at a Lowe's department store because we're standing in line, and, and the line was moving really slow, and I said something to the guy behind me about, you know, maybe I'd be better off if I'd gone to Home Depot instead of Lowe's today. And the guy in front of me had to volunteer, you know, I don't, 
I don't, I don't shop there because they're pushing the homosexual agenda. And I'm like, well, I don't really give an F about that. And I said the actual word. That's not really something that's important to me. And he went on and on about how, you know, our troops are fighting and America's falling apart. And, and finally I had an episode. Let me tell you something, buddy. When I was in the military serving and risking my ass, I was risking my ass for every American. Gay people, straight people, whatever it was, that's what I was out there doing. Don't put words in my mouth. And I, I went on for a few other things. And I ended with some like, if you want to be the guy that's the homophobe in 2015, you go ahead and you do that. And I stopped, and I realized there's like 20 people looking at me, and I didn't know what to expect. And all of a sudden, people started clapping. And I went, there is hope. There is hope. The guy looked kind of sheepish, and he left. I mean, what else are you going to do? You just got balled out, and everybody clapped at you getting balled out. Because you're, they're worried about, you know, how how much of a concern can I have about whether or not a, a store supports one person's rights over another? As long as they're not trampling anybody else's, I, I don't really care. But this guy was assigning that to the troops, and people buy into this all the time. It's done through our churches. It's done through our our, our civic groups. It's done through our government. There is no such thing as freedom unless freedom exists for everyone. It's such an easy thing to understand. But our people have been brainwashed by generations of programming and breaking it's difficult. And, 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 and Pat, what you see with this anger and hostility is whenever anybody attempts to break that programming, the programmed react with violence. It's just what it is. And when you find yourself getting really upset over something somebody did or didn't do, and yet it doesn't really affect you, you know that it's your programming. There's so much shit going on that does affect you. You don't have time to be angry about something that does not. And some guy not standing for the national anthem, whether he's a football quarterback or some jackass in the third seat ahead of you at the game that just doesn't stand, doesn't affect you unless you choose for it to affect you. And when you choose for something to affect you that doesn't have to, and it affects you negatively, that's your programming at work. Remember that. On to better things, Bo here says, My wife is worried about grilling on charcoal. Can you explain how the HCAs or carcinogens are not an issue grilling with charcoal? Details. My gas grill just broke, and I want to buy a Weber kettle grill from your T-Spaz link. My wife is concerned that charcoal grill is unhealthy. Would love your thoughts. Thanks, Jack. Bo. Okay, so... HCAs are indeed carcinogenic, and they are uh, created when cooking meats, and it, it does happen, okay? Um, and there are also something called PAHs, PAHs, that can also be cancerous, and those are created when you get really high temperature, quick burns, when that fat drips down and the flame like lights the side on fire and actually chars it black, right? Okay, so those both can be carcinogenic. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you use a gas grill uh, or a charcoal grill. These, especially the HCA part, are, are produced by a combination of temperature and time. And the most aggressive of these are produced, the most damaging are produced at temperatures over 500 degrees. So unless you're doing really, really high temperature grilling uh, for long durations, you're, you're, you're not going to create that many in the first place. And again, whether it's charcoal or gas, or your broiler in your oven, doesn't matter. It's not a function of charcoal that creates HCAs. 
It is a function of heat and the amino acids in the meat itself. So, here's some things that you can do. Number one, marinate your meat. Marinating your meat will reduce HCAs by uh, significant amounts up to 90%. At that point, it's not even really worth worrying about anymore. Number two, it's okay to get a nice little sear on there, but don't, don't overdo it. And then cook with indirect heat on your grill, which is the best way to cook a steak anyway. You put it over the coals, you get it, you get it nice and seared, you flip it over, and you move it off the heat, you cover it, you cook it, and don't cook your meat well frickin' done. That ruins a steak anyway. So if you're cooking meat that's like medium, uh, to, you know, rare, medium, rare, medium, which is like the three levels where you haven't ruined the steak uh, on your charcoal grill, and you're using a quick outer sear and then an indirect heat, you've already, you know, 90% of the battles won. Now, here's another thing about um, HCAs and PHAs. They can be largely prevented with the use of herbs and spices. Here's some of the spices that are best at reducing HCAs. Rosemary, basil, thyme, sage, oregano, garlic, and onion. Well, that just sounds like steak seasoning, doesn't it? So if you build a spice blend using those ingredients while you're flavoring your meat, you're reducing the effect of HCAs. Um, turmeric also has a tremendous benefit, though it's not really something I like on steaks. It's kind of good with chicken. It's kind of good curry. So if you're going to go with the curry side, you can go to turmeric. With garlic... You're also better off, instead of using garlic powder, but you can still use garlic powder, using fresh garlic in your marinades, and that can reduce HCA formation by itself up to 70%. So as you can see, we're starting to take a slice of a slice of a slice of a slice of a slice here by simply using marination uh, of our meats, uh, not using extreme high temperatures in our cooking, cooking with indirect heat, not getting too much char and black on them, um, using a good, uh, you know, uh, marinade, marinade and uh, a good spice blend. Um, so, I mean, think about, you, you throw this together, salt and pepper, right? Uh, basil, thyme, sage, oregano, rosemary, uh, some dried onion and dried garlic. You throw all that together in a spice grinder, or just your coffee grinder, you can get through tea spas, right? You make it like a powder, and you dust your meat, whatever you're cooking with that. That that works on everything. That's like a recipe for goodness, and it helps prevent HCAs. So th those, th 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 this is something I just don't worry about. Now, I will tell you that a lot of times people think, well, then barbecue, slow smoke stuff must be really low in HCAs. It can actually be quite high, and you should limit how much of that you eat. Uh, I'm talking like uh, every week, maybe once, really more like every two weeks at the most for the really slow, long stuff. Even though it's cooked at lower temperatures, it's held at temperature for a much longer time. Now, <laughs> this applies to things that people don't even think about, though. If you slow cook something in a crock pot for 19 hours, got it? You can, you can do, because again, it's not a function of the flame. It's a function of heat, meat, and time, and how long those three things stay together. Now, the other thing is, it is absolutely the case that HCAs are carcinogenic. Um, but you're probably inhaling 60,000 carcinogenic things every day. 
different chemicals and things that float around in the air. And yet you, not everybody comes down with cancer every five minutes. It's about a total amount and, 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 and the consistency of it. So this, this research that's been done with laboratory animals that shows a marked increase in cancerous issues with animals fed HCA, heated meat, basically, um, the animals were fed large amounts of that for a very long time and you know fed it almost exclusively. So I'm not saying it's all good in vitamin C and stuff, right? Okay, but it it isn't the boogeyman that it's been created to be. But the belief that well, since I'm going to use you know uh, a gas grill or I'm going to use my oven, that this doesn't apply is is nonsensical. So best practices for your cooking of meats always marinade uh, or or brine. Either one works really well. Uh, and use spices and herbs, mostly from the mint family, which again are rosemary, basil, thyme, sage, and oregano. What a horrible sentence in life to have to use that stuff. The other thing is, you know, HCAs are basically an oxidizer. So if we take an antioxidant uh, with our meals, like a really nice glass of red wine, then uh, we do a lot to deal with that. Uh, a little bit of red wine in your marinade with that garlic and, uh, and onion might not be a bad thing to do as well. Uh, but simply, you know, consuming a good antioxidant like vitamin E, uh, the days that you're going to eat something that's been maybe pushed a little bit more toward the dark side with grilling, um, you know, pop a couple extra vitamin E's that day, uh, maybe some uh, uh, CoQ10, right? It's, that's that's a good practice anyway. So this is a false boogeyman that is real, but he's a little bitty boogeyman, and we've made him into a great big evil boogeyman. And where does all of this nonsense come from? Vegetarians. Vegetarians are the ones that push this crap because they don't want you to eat meat. Uh, and then they, they, they attack it at the grill, and then it makes you afraid. Uh, I'm going to tell you guys. I'm going to put out a pretty good article from Precision Nutrition today uh, in the show notes that you can take a look at that goes over everything I just told you and more. A very in-depth, well-researched article uh, by Brian St. Pierre uh, that is uh, really, it tells you everything I just told you and more. Uh, but you can uh, investigate from, for yourself from that point forward. Next one I have no answer for at all, but maybe some of you guys do. It says, hey, Jack, do you know of any good use for the calcium magnesium sediments that settle in hot water tanks? Details, I'm a plumber that services hot water tanks once in a while and removes the hard hardness residue that collects. I am currently have a pile from cleaning out a tank. I salvage from pig scalding cauldron, which turned out great, a free 60-gallon 60, 60 stainless steel tank. Any use for these distillates? Uh, I think they are mostly calcium and magnesium, soil amendment, livestock mineral mix, something else, potential dangers and toxins. Thanks, Blair. Um, you know, I, I don't know, Blair. I, I have no idea because if it's just calcium and magnesium, you'd think, well, yeah, it'd be a fine soil amendment, but would it be bioavailable? Would there be any toxins? So if anybody actually knows of any use for this or any cautions or like what should be done with it to properly dispose of it if it's not useful, uh, let us know in the comments on today's blog because I don't have an answer on that for that one at all. Uh, this is a really interesting question, and you, you, when I say it, you'll probably be like, oh, yeah, he said that before. It comes from John. John says, Jack, question, what is the best way to test for learning, retention, and understanding outside of the conventional means, i.e. written exams, papers, etc.? Details, I'm going through a 10-week onboarding program with my new employer. At the end of each week, we have a written test. 
Many of my college colleagues get extremely anxious leading un into the exam, worried more about attaining a good grade from the memorization of facts than understanding the overall concepts presented throughout the week. Just wanted to get your thoughts, especially as education market evolves in the coming years. Love the show and appreciate everything that you do. John. So here, John, the answer is the best way to test to see if someone has learned something is to ask them to teach it to you. That's it. Teach me about. Show me how to. Pretend I don't know anything and I'm your student and you teach me. Not only is it the best way to test to see if they've actually mastered the skill, the knowledge, the process, but it reinforces their learning at a much higher level than taking the test. So the person tested this way actually retains the information for a longer period of time, and it is the number one way to evaluate people in an effectual manner, and it's something the military does constantly. Military training constantly goes through the concept of, I'm going to teach you, now you teach me, now you teach the squad. And by the time the person does that, they tend to remember the information, and the military uses it because it's often information that can, like, save lives. So they use the most effective means necessary. And what you'll find in, in, in military, I think, you know, it's, it's like the Navy and the Air Force that do written exams for promotion levels or something like that. Um, and there's more of an intellectual feel there. And in an army where, like, you go blow stuff up, uh, no, it's based on points and merit and proven accomplishments and going through different schools. And those schools use that testing modularity. Can you do what you were taught to do? Not can you write about it. Can you teach what you were taught? Not can you answer a, a question. And, and I believe it's probably the best way we could actually radically transform the educational system. You know, if you think back in, in, in the high school or grade school, right, well, you do one oral report a year or something like that, sometimes maybe one every other year. I mean, how many times would you really have to stand up in front of a classroom and basically be the teacher? And I'm sure when you did, you were, you know, most people are scared shitless when they have to do that. Well, if you had to do it all the time, you'd get over it, you know? Remember, they used to come up to the board and solve the problem on the board in front of the class? That scared the shit out of people. But if you said, come up here and teach us how to do something that you learned last night in math, well, you're going to teach what you learned, Okay, you're not going to teach what you didn't learn. You're going you're to come up here and, 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 and write a problem down and show us how to solve it. You're going to pick a problem you know how to solve. Then you're going to get confidence. You're going to be able to do it. This is how you teach. You, you demonstrate. You ask for the person to actually reproduce the teaching, not sit down and write an answer to a question. Because the problem with that is I guarantee you, I could get a person who got straight A's five years out of high school, give them their exams, and most of them couldn't get B's. Not all of them. There's weirdos like me that remember freaking everything, right? But most people wouldn't be able to get a B even though they got all A's. Why? Because they never gave a shit. They never cared about the information. They cared about passing They cared about getting a good boy star. They cared about keeping their job, whatever it is. So they, they, they forced, memorized something good enough to get through the event. And as soon as they get through the event, oh, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Think about how many times you took a test and you got a grade on it that was sufficient to get what you needed out of it and thought, I don't have to worry about that anymore. In the military, 
when you have a skills qualification or something like that, it, it, it's not a, you don't get a 70% and that's a pass. You don't get an 80% and a pass. You don't get a 95% and it's a pass. You get a go, no go. You go up to the station that you're, you're demonstrating your skill set at, like, oh, I don't know, tending to a battle injury. You either did it right, ding, wrong, blah, that's it. And there's schools where you get a no-go, you fail the school. Now, not you get a no-go the first time, but when you take your final test for that school and you go through that school, that final, you know, uh, final battery of tests, if you get one no-go, you fail. There's other schools where you can get two and then you don't fail. But that there might be 25, 35 or more stations that you test out, go or no-go. Did you do it right? And that's it. Because otherwise, when you tell somebody, well, they got an 85 on a test, it's a B, it's good enough, right? Well, that means 15% of the information you failed to recall for the moment you were you know, prepared. To, well, what do you think your failure to recall is going to be five days later? It's why our school systems are just an abysmal failure. It's why we have students who are good people, they're trying hard, they study hard, but when you put them in the real world, they can't function. So it's it's teach and require the student to become the teacher that develops and proves mastery of a subject. Anyway, moving on. It's also uncomfortable. And uh, it, it, it's why it's probably not done as much, because it, it, it takes people out of their comfort zone. But it, it doesn't take long. Like I said, if you had to do an oral report every week when you were in first grade, by the time you were in third grade, not only would you have been able to do it, you wouldn't have cared anymore. It would have been easy. And by the way, when you were in you were in like sixth or seventh grade at your first dance, and you wanted to go ask that girl to dance, and you're like, I don't know if she likes me. And you would have just walked up and said, hey, you want to dance? And if she said yes, you would have went and danced. And if she said no, you would have said, you're lucky somebody asked you. That's the type of confidence we'd be creating in people with this, even though it might be uncomfortable at first. There is no growth without discomfort. You think about the lobster, right? So the lobster sheds its, 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 its shell only because it's uncomfortable. If we treated lobsters the way we treat people with discomfort and it got uncomfortable, we'd medicate it and it would never grow. It has to become so uncomfortable it's willing to crack its shell off and step out and be vulnerable for 48 hours to other predators that it normally wouldn't be and hide in a crevice so that it can grow. All growth requires discomfort. All true learning requires at least some level of discomfort. All right, next. What, Jack, what might happen to college sports once the student loan bubble pops and universities start closing their doors? Headlines about NCAA players wanting to unionize and receive pay beyond their degree feel like a symptom of committing educational, of the coming educational crisis. Um, the university may go down, but I still want to see my favorite team play. Uh, it seems like College Player League could run uh, just fine decoupled from the university. Thank you for your thoughts and the work you do listening has been uh, challenging, fun, demoralizing, and inspiring. Oh, the seeds you have planted. Thanks, Zach. So um, decoupled to a degree from the educational institution, yes. I want to start out with a defense of college athletes on scholarships. Um, they can't work and make any real money not even outside of their uh, their sport, okay? I mean, like, they can't really take a real job if they're on a, uh, like, a, a main, major school, full-on scholarship. They're, 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 the, the, the university owns them. 
And I want you to put yourself in, in this perspective. Yes, you're getting a, an education for free. You're also probably not getting the education you particularly wanted. Uh, some schools will tell certain athletes, these are the courses you're taking because they know that they're easier. They, they will take up less time. They'll get you a degree in communications or marketing or some bullshit like that. And, uh, and I'm not saying all schools. I'm saying this does happen. I've talked to enough athletes to know. Um, and, and you, the, the amount of time you put into a, a, a program at a, at a major headline school, you know, like let's say a Notre Dame, right, is all encompassing. You pretty much work, work out, train, and, and, and practice, play, and do your schoolwork. And that's it. Well, that's all they need to do. Now, hold on. I bet when you were 20, that's not what all you did. Right? And, yeah, they might get crazy and blow off steam at fraternity parties or whatever when they can. But it's, it's because of the, the stress. And they can't earn any significant income. They just can't. So now you're this this kid. You are going to school and you are getting this education, but your your degree has been kind of laid out in front of you and what you're going to take. You're a a starter for a football team for a a big university, and you know that every single week that your team plays, that huge stadium that you're in sells out for lots of money. That every T-shirt that's sold with the brand on it, you know, and and you get what a couple hundred bucks or something like that for a stipend. And you're thinking, you know, out of every hundred of us, one goes on to NFL. One. Ninety-nine of us, when we're done, the school's done with us, they throw us out. If we do get a good degree and a good job, they care about us as alumni, but otherwise they're done with us. We're going to be the ones sitting in those seats paying, paying to see our old team play and, 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 and hopefully earning enough money to be able to come. And every single time I go out there, I could break a leg and end my career. Even the guy that knows he's going to the NFL, one blowout of a knee, and he could be done. And he's risking it all for this team in exchange for an education. And don't you think you'd think, you know what? It's, and there's, there's people willing to pay money that would go to you, but you're not allowed. Don't you think you'd be like, you know what? We should be able to earn some money for what we do beyond a scholarship. Because... What they do is worth more than the scholarships they receive. And a lot of them don't receive full scholarships. That's the other thing. There's a shitload of these kids out there that are on a football scholarship or a baseball scholarship. They're on a 50% scholarship. So they're still paying half their tuition to very expensive schools. And I know you're thinking, cry me a river. But I just wanted to say that because I've had enough conversations with high-level college athletes to know that it's not as good a deal as that you think it is. And... Why shouldn't a person be able to endorse Nike if Nike's willing to pay them money just because they play for college? That's preposterous. That's not a free market, I'll tell you that. So on the question, I don't think you can completely divest uh, Notre Dame football from the University of Notre Dame. And I don't think, you know, uh, you can do the same. University of Florida Gators, you know, you can't just have the Florida Gators, but they're not and, – and really have the – Kind of the the clout that those brands have, right? But I do look at it this way. If the education system switches to the model of the future, which is much more distance-based education, um, 
having you know some courses on campus, most courses off campus, uh, enabling people to get educations at a much lower cost, then opening up the the potential of collegiate sports into almost like a a minor leagues for all sports has great potential as a revenue stream. Right now it already is a huge revenue stream, but if it can be done in such a way that a student might actually choose to go to, I don't know, Texas Tech, because he can make more money there than going to Temple, then it actually opens up a whole new type of competition for students. Because there's also going to be students that want to go to school Where the guy that they played, you know, they played football with is going, even if they're not playing football, because they have a friend that's on the team, and all this stuff happens now. But it, it could be that collegiate sports is one of the few remaining things that lasts from the collegiate world. But they're going to have to adapt. These guys are going to keep pushing for some level of compensation. They really are, and I mean. I don't think people understand the level of commitment required to be a collegiate athlete today. And I don't care if you're a tennis player or a golf player. It's a massive commitment, more than most people could ever imagine. I remember when my friend and I got uh, in a wreck at uh, on Thanksgiving morning, and we ended up stuck in a place called McPherson, Kansas. We toured McPherson University because uh, we had nothing else to do, and they were open. We came back on a, on Monday to get our truck, and it wasn't even fixed yet. We had a rental car. So we, we went to McPherson University and said, hey, we're thinking about going to school here. We weren't, just to take a tour. And um, they were pretty much still shut down. They had like an extra couple extra days off for the holiday. And, uh, you know, the football coach said, oh, you played football in, in high school, and both my friend, myself and my friend had. He goes, yeah, I think one of the guys from the team is, is here. Uh, he decided not to go home. And uh, so we went by his, his dorm room, and, you know, we opened the door, and he's in there doing curls on Monday, you know. I mean, so even when he wasn't forced, that's the commitment. And this was a very, very second-tier, two-year private university. This was nothing like a Notre Dame or a USC or something like that. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to watch how collegiate sports uh, responds to the dwindling uh, education market. By the way, I, I had a story I didn't put in – Uh, the, the lineup today because it's a long lineup. But the basic concept was trying to sell how valuable college is, as always, because big media is just all over this. But in it, they noted that the kind of the high tide line for college enrollment was uh, 2012. That college enrollment has been down every year since 2012. And actually, they think it's a problem that the better the economy gets and the easier it is to find a job without a degree, that's bad because then people don't go. That's how that's how freaking ridiculous mainstream media has gotten with this. They're they're doing everything they can to try to save it and it's it's not savable because it's not a sustainable system. It's 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 a very parasitic system that is existing and living off debt. Uh, of the the people that it's claiming to serve, it's not that it couldn't be good, but it's going to take radical shifts and changes to make it, uh, you know, kind of, sort of, in some ways, what it once was. It, it used to be that college was something that a person that really belonged there could go do. They could work a part time job. They could pretty much pay their bills as they went. They could get out with little to no debt. It's very difficult to do that anymore. Anyway, let's take another one. 
Just a real quick one from Karim, uh, who is now in Austin, part of the Walking to Freedom movement, who got the heck out of Chicago, uh, or as I call it, Chicago. Um, Karim says, I now have friends in tech, which I've worked in for five, for, for years, uh, that have the official title of infrastructure automation engineer. It's happening faster. So what Karim's saying is there are, there's a whole new career field in eliminating jobs. Because let me tell you, if you are a infrastructure automation engineer, your job is to eliminate jobs. And you guys think this is, this is new. This isn't new. One of the, the jobs that I had when it, the company got bought out, I was a uh, director of marketing for a company called Sage Telecom. They were like the only surviving local phone service competitor left. You know, and this is in, oh, I guess 2004, somewhere five, somewhere around like that. Uh, right before I started working with Neil Franklin. And, uh, when they got bought out, this, this company called Silverleaf Capital did the buyout. And we used to call these guys the Bobs. Because if you've ever seen, um, Office Space, they reminded us of the Bobs. They're those type of consultants, right? And uh, they consulted in the buyout and then became the managerial company after the buyout. So they told the, their customer to buy the company, and then they said, now you need somebody to manage the company. We recommend ourselves, and the customer said, okay. Okay, great. Um, the blind leading the idiots I, was what that was. Anyway, their first move was to automate customer service as much as possible. Not to give the customer a better experience, but to eliminate 400 jobs from a profitable company at a time when nobody was profitable in local phone service. And they did just that. They asked me to be part of it. I told them to piss off and left. I wanted nothing to do with a mining operation was my exact words when I, I, I told them one of the bobs. I also told him, he was telling me how important he was and how they really didn't see me as someone to, uh, to stay with Sage long term, but to do their type of job. And he, he was really pouring it on. And I told him, I said, dude, you know what you are? He said, what? I said, you're a shark's tooth. By this point, clearly I decided I was leaving. He was trying to win me back in, you know. And, like, this, his eyes got, like, saucers. Like, what the hell do you mean? I said, you're like a shark's tooth. You think you're so important to this company? If you died in a car wreck on the way to work tomorrow, they would pop another one of you in place, a guy that could do your job. You're just a cog in the system. But even then, this, this, this thing had started. All the way back in, uh, like, 2001, 1999, I worked for a company called Garrettcom, uh, right before I went and worked for Fluke. And one of our chief vertical markets was industrial automation. We were selling Ethernet hardware into upgrades where automation had been done with serial bus systems in the past. And we qu quickly caught on that there wasn't just a replacement thing, that there were tons of companies that hadn't used automation in the past trying to figure out how to do it. Now, at that time, it wasn't It wasn't anywhere near the level it is today. Companies were just starting to go down that, that curve, and what they were thinking at the time is they were going to make their employees more productive. Today, the objective is not to make employees more productive. It is to get rid of the least productive employees, or in some cases, the most productive employees. Because what if I can replace your most productive employees for a song? I had another story I didn't put in today. They have uh, security robots now. They, they just kind of roll around, and then they basically call for a person when a person's needed. Uh, they can they can scan and, and evaluate up to 400 license plate uh, numbers uh, a minute. Uh, they never 
fail to do their job because they're programmed to do their job. I think they have a long way to go, but there it's a start. It's a start, and it's it's getting to where these things are viable. And Uber's renting them. Uber doesn't own them. They're renting them for where they have, because Uber actually has some vehicles in their fleet, and they have their actual corporate headquarters and all, and they rent them for $7 an hour. $7 an hour. What kind of a security guard can you get for $7 an hour? What you can do is you get a couple really good security guards that are there to respond, and you replace all your other walking drones with actual rolling drones, right? This this isn't going to stop, guys. And I think, you know, this week was the week where I culled the most number of stories from people so far, where I went, I just can't put them all on about automation. It was like a tidal wave of automation stuff this week. And I think people are just starting to get it. So here's a presidential prediction that goes on with this. The next president, whoever he or she might be, will be with us, barring an aneurysm or something, from 2017 to 2020, right? And maybe longer. Toward the end of that administration the complete wheels are going to be coming off of the job market because of this stuff. And whoever it is, it's going to be the one that takes the blame, even though that's not something a president really has anything to do with. And the ass clown circusry around it is going to be extreme. It's going to be ex- like, like you can't imagine. Remember the whole $15 an hour, here's your replacement, stupid memes and stuff like that? What they're going to do is they're going to blame the worker for the worker's job being eliminated. You wanted too much money. They're going to blame the the, 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 uh, the minimum wage. They're going to blame tax policy. Republicans will blame Democrats, and Democrats will blame Republicans because nobody wants to face the, the, the reality. Half of our jobs will be gone in 10 years. Half. Now, it doesn't mean they'll all be gone, but you won't be needed if you have a job in 10 years and you're in one of that 50 percentiles, um, you'll be there because of benevolence or luck, right? I mean, seriously. And In fact, if you doubt that, I have a, another story here for you that kind of backs up my claim already, not 10 years from now. Uh, and, you know, this is a completely radical alternative media. No, it's Harvard Business Review. Yeah, Harvard Business Review. Uh, I have this, this article that was sent to me by, let me make sure I give credit to the sender, sent to me by Jerry. Um, and this article says, excess management is costing the United States $3 trillion a year. $3 trillion a year. More people are working in big bureaucratic organizations than ever before. Yet there's compelling evidence that bureaucracy creates significant drag on productivity and organizational resilience and innovation. By our reckoning, the cost of excess bureaucracy in the United States economy amounts to more than $3 trillion a year in lost economic output, or about 17% of GDP. Here's the arithmetic. According to our analysis of occupational data provided by the U.S. Bureau of Labor, blah, 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 there were 23.8 million managers, first-line supervisors, and administrators in the American workforce in 2014. This figure includes both public and private sectors, but does not include individuals in IT-related functions. That works out to one manager and administrator for every 4.7 employees. Overall, managers and administrators make up 17.6% of the U.S. workforce and receive nearly 
30% of total compensation. How many of these 23.8 million overseers do we actually need? We can get the answer by looking at the management practices of a small but growing number of post-bureaucratic pioneers. Their experience suggests it's possible to run a complex business with less than half the managerial load of typically found in large companies. Among the vanguards are Nucor, America's most profitable steelmaker, Morningstar, the world's largest tomato processor, W.L. Gore, $3 billion high-tech company famous for Gore-Tex fabrics, Selvenska Halbuska Bacon, a uh, Stockholm-based bank with more than 800 branches across Northern Europe and the UK, Sun Hydraulics, uh, value uh, of a pioneering development developer of online games, and General Electric's jet engine plant in Durham, North Carolina. Um, all of these are sitting with ratios of so, something like 10 to 1. So these companies are running a managerial-to-employee ratio of 10 to 1, and the U.S. on a whole is 4.7 to 1. These are all very successful companies. So just by the basic math, Harvard Business View, Review is right, there's far more managers than necessary. But see, that's the, the other thing. It's not just more managers. Who are these managers managing? Right? So, I mean, if you're a person that does real work, physical work, um, you probably can think of your manager that walks the floor or comes out to the job site or whatever, and that's the kind of manager you're thinking of. Well, the... Insane number of managers comes when you get into bureaucracy, when you get into you know office environments for companies that actually do real work, and you end up with more people pushing pencils than pushing a line. And all of that shit can be automated. So what this is telling you is that you already have half of these people not being necessary. And then even what they're doing can actually be automated and a computer can do it. And many of the people they're managing, their jobs can be replaced by a computer. The only reason this hasn't happened yet, and, and, and Jerry hit on it in his email to me, the people that are making the decisions about what technology comes into these companies are a large partly of the middle management, right? So until somebody breaks the C-level in the sales department and says, Mr. CFO, I believe you have a fiduciary responsibility, to take a look at what you know, quadcom automation can do for your company, they all just get you know gatekeeped. They they don't want you in there. If they actually understand what you can do, you know, you say they'll make the company more money and all that's kind of it. You know, as a manager, it's on a bonus structure. I'm interested, but when I actually figure out what you do, well, I don't want that. You're going to cost me my job sooner or later. But when I get through the CFO, I get to the director level and above, right? The director and C level. Then I can get some things done. Directors, still tough. Well, I guess at that C-level, these are guys who are paid for their thinking about the operations of the company. It doesn't matter who does the work. Well, once I can get that compelling story in there, all of a sudden the company's hiring a new guy called, you guessed it, an automation uh, implementation engineer who goes to work eliminating jobs. Uh, and many of those jobs are not necessary already. It's going to be a bloodletting like you've never seen. And we're going to have to figure out what to do about it. And the scariest shit is all the people in power are unwilling to look at this problem and have this conversation. Um, you couple this with our national debt, our weakening presence in the world, um, the dumbing down of the American people. My God, 
We have a historic problem coming at us, and when the shit hits the fan from it, everybody in charge is going to act like they had no idea it was coming, and no one could have foreseen this. Oh, my God, it's just an amazing time to be alive, and we have to figure out what to do now. The time to figure out what to do was 10 years ago. But like planting a tree, even though the best time to plant a tree was 10 or 20 years ago, the next best time is now. For us, we need to figure out what to do for ourselves. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for enterprising people that can self-educate, that can adapt, and that can be malleable and, and, and shift. You're going to have to be a willow to survive the future. Oaks are mighty, but in strong winds they break. Willows bend and give. And that's how you're going to have to be very Kung Fu-like with your philosophy to get through the coming you know, decade. Because it's, I'm telling you, those of you who still think I'm overdoing this, by this time next year are going to be like, holy shit. That's all I'm going to say about it. Let's move on. I want to give you a listener's story about what happened with the vaccination. And many of you know I am not, despite the few zealots out there, anti-vax or anti-science. Um, I believe that our vaccination schedule is extremely aggressive. It is unnecessary, and it occurs at the developmental point in our children. And with our modern society, the, the numbers and the repetitions of vaccinations are unnecessary, and they pose a health risk to our children. Okay, uh, For that, I'm called anti-science. I'm still like, you can still give the vaccinations. They just don't need to be all at once. They don't all need to be, you know, you don't need to give kids as many vaccinations to get when they're freaking two months old, for God's sakes. I mean, we really don't. Okay? Anyway, here's a story. And like I said, stories are what binds us. Jack, I just thought you should hear something that happened to me recently. It has shaken me pretty bad. My wife and I are foster parents now in the state of Georgia. We were given a four-month-old meth baby to take care of that naturally didn't have any of her vaccinations since her mom is a methed-up moron. So we did what the state requires. We took her to the doctor and got her her shots. Now, infants are supposed to have two, four, and six-month vaccines, and this kid had none. So they did the two-month ones right away and scheduled the four-month ones for four weeks later because it was super important to catch her up. Now, this is the part that I want to share because no outsider will believe us ever. The kid was fine, like totally fine. Her development was on track. She was a little delayed in communication, but that's because she was neglected. She was catching up. Her physical indicators were good, as proven not only by her attention as foster parents, but also by her pediatrician and developmental specialist assigned by the state. She was fine when she came. She started to blossom and grow. And, she, and, and even the first round of thought she was still okay. She was good. Then we took her to her second round of shots just four weeks after the first. It was just not necessary. I'm not blaming Andy in Atlanta here that sent this in because a foster parent does what the state says or you don't get to be a foster parent. This is, this is our medical system just being reckless. Since then, she has not only failed to grow, but she has backslid. She no longer laughs, starts to make sounds, blows raspberries or anything else kids do. She can barely even remember how to sit up. In my mind, and based on everything I've repeatedly, rapidly read, she is on course for autism spectrum. And another week, we will be forced to give another round of shots. God only knows what will happen then. I fear greatly what that will do. I didn't start this as an anti-vaxxer. I took your position. There are too many shots, and a parent should research what one does and make a decision. 
I still maintain that stance even after this. I am not fully anti-vax. However, I have seen an infant affected by a full doctor-recommended course delivered too fast. In my mind, I'm now responsible for causing autism to this kid. No, you're not, Andy. The state is. I'm just going to give you that somewhat of, you know, somewhat of a, a, a consolence there. How can I live with that guilt now? How can any parent live with that guilt? I have literally seen a child damaged more from vaccinations than from being exposed to meth in utero. Anyone outside would just blame the meth, but it wasn't. And I know it wasn't. It's just not right what these people are doing. I just thought you should know. You are right. The anti-vax people may not be completely right, but not giving your child shots ain't going to wreck their minds and bodies for life in the same way. So I blame vaxxers way more than the anti-crowd. I thought I would add a voice to this in case anyone seeks your advice on what to do. I've seen it go wrong, and I would never want a parent to live through this, Andy, in Atlanta. Um, yeah, I just... I, I, I've seen too much. I, it, it makes me think of one uh, mother that I saw with her autistic child that... This kid was like 22 years old and just completely incapable of any type of self-maintenance. I mean, just as bad as it gets with autism. And what had happened, he was, I think, two years old and doing fine. And in this case, there was clearly a misadministered vaccination. She had her, young, her younger child and this child, her older child and this child, two children there for vaccinations. They were getting uh, the same vaccinations and, of course, different dosages because of weight. And they were both supposed to get each a couple shots, and the nurse gave the boy a shot and then gave him another shot and gave him a double dose. Gave him a double dose of, I think it was MMR. And he passed out. And they said it's okay, it's, it's, it's an overdose, but it's all right, you know. And the next day he was having issues, and they said, oh, it's okay, it happens. And, you know, within a couple of months he's diagnosed full-on autism. Now, this is a kid that had developed perfectly fine at his age until that point, but the vaccinations didn't do it. And when pressed, a medical uh, reviewer of this said, well, he was given a double dose. It was a, it was a, it was a medical error, so if it did, you know, then... Well, wait a minute. Well, that would just mean that it's, you see, guys, look, I don't want anybody getting themselves into a hard way because of vaccine, vaccine resistance. I do know that most people that are vaccinated don't have any lingering side effects or anything like that. But I do believe that it's just common sense that we space these things out a bit more. That it's not necessary to cram this much vaccination into a child that's not even a year old yet, for instance, uh, or even at two years and three years of age, to, to allow uh, the, the brain to develop. But as far as the best time for them to develop resistance, bullshit. Either your vaccines work or they don't. That's a bullshit story, you know? And we live in a, a country with modern medicine and, and modern sanitation, and we have a very good lid on this stuff. And by the way, you know the herd immunity thing? The herd immunity thing is, for, is an explanation for why we don't have measles all over this country, for instance, is horseshit. Here's why it's horseshit. The same people that tell you you got to get your vaccinations will tell you that they do wear off. So I would bet that 90% or more of American adults are walking around with no immunity to measles. There's no herd immunity. In most of these diseases, 
in the adult population in America because most adults don't get booster shots, especially for things like MMR. When's the last time, if you're, if you're 40 years old, when's the last time you got an MMR shot? So you don't, you're not, you're not immune to measles, mumps, or rubella. You're not. You're not. There's no herd immunity. It's a lie. And I defy anyone because I've had this conversation with doctors who are friends that make the herd immunity argument. And when I say, scientifically explain to me, medically explain to me how you can have herd immunity, which requires a 95% vaccination rate, when you have an adult population that over 90% have never had follow-up shots and no longer have the immunity that would be. So now you're at a, you're at a fraction of, of what you say is necessary for herd immunity. Explain it. They can't. They hem and they haw and they talk around it and, well, the children are the vector and, uh, come on, no. No. By the way, remember the big scare of measles when I made fun of it and some of you got mad at me for it? Yeah, it turns out back when that happened, um, all the people that got measles vaccinated. Yeah. I think a couple weren't, but like the majority, like the 14 that freaked everybody out, yeah, they all, and it turned out that like the, the cause was like, Overreaction to the vaccine that caused the—I I don't remember exactly—but it wasn't—it wasn't what the TV said. It's it, in fact when they figured that out, they just stopped talking about it. You can go back and look it up for yourself if you want to. All right, with that, I want to remind you guys you can help support the show by joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more and Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps. Active duty and prior service. All of you guys do qualify for a discount. Uh, just email me with service discount in the subject line. Send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Everybody else, you can sign up just by going to the survival podcast and clicking on members to learn more. It is a membership that really does pay for itself. The other way that you can help support this show is by doing all of your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Go to tspaz.com to shop on Amazon, no matter what you're buying. Uh, just click the link once you get there to go through to Amazon, do your shopping, you support our show. It's painless. It doesn't cost you any money. You're only buying what you're going to buy anyway, and you're supporting us. I also do a review every day. Today's review is an important one. I, I, I want you to either get this product or get a product like this, and I don't care if you don't get it from Amazon. If you can get it from a store, uh, if you have a brand you'd prefer, I, I, I don't care. But I, I seriously want you guys to have this in your kitchen. Um, it's They are cut-resistant gloves, and the ones I recommend are made by a company called No Cry. They are a level 5 cut-resistant glove, and they're 12 bucks a pair. And by the way, I don't know about you, but when I'm cutting you know, stuff for dinner or what have you. I'm not really worried about cutting myself with the hand I'm holding the knife with. So these gloves, even though they're a pair, can go on either hand or that type of a glove. So you just use one. So they last, a pair lasts quite a long time. They're very uh, stretchy. Uh, they fit nice and tight. So you don't feel like you've lost dexterity with them, which is one reason people don't like to use gloves. And they are very, very cut resistant. Now, there's a video that I linked to in my review of an idiot, he is an idiot and a moron at the same time, taking a razor knife and trying to cut his hand through one of these gloves, and the glove does work. Um, cut resistant is not cut proof, and I'm sure if you really try to cut yourself through these gloves, you can, but if you're using a knife the way you should be in the first place and you have a slip, you're likely to not cut yourself at all. If you do, you're going to cut yourself a lot less. Now, a lot of people think, eh, I cut myself once in a while, Jack, it's not that big a deal. Okay, here's the three types of cuts that you get when you're, you know, 
working with sharp kitchen knives or even sh sharp knives in a shop or something. Number one, it hurts, it's inconvenient, and your first thought is, damn, how disruptive is this going to be for the next week or two till it heals? These are the ones you put a Band-Aid on, it hurts, you put some ointment on or whatever, but now you can't type worth a damn for a week and your job involves typing and you're pissed off or you can't work out because it, every time you do a curl, that finger bleeds and you it, it disrupts your life. There's that kind of a cut, okay? Not a big deal, but it inconvenience. Then there's the next kind of cut. This is the kind of cut that ruins your day. This is the one where you look at it and go, shit, honey, I need to go to the emergency room, right? That's, that's that kind of cut. So, you know, that is expensive and it's disruptive. And, you know, it usually happens like, I don't know, when you're preparing Thanksgiving dinner or something like that. It's just, it, it costs money and time and it disrupts, you know. And imagine it's like 7 o'clock at night, you're doing dinner, now you got to go to the ER. You're going to be there to when? Like 11.30 if you're lucky. If you're lucky. Especially if it's a Friday when all the moon bats are out hurting themselves, right? Okay. So that's the thing. Now, we don't want that kind. This $12 gov would pre prevent that. Now, if you just made one of those cuts, we've probably all had one or two in our lives, and it hurts, and it's deep, and you got to go get a needle shoved in your finger, and you got to get stitches, and it's going to be disruptive for a while because of that. You're going to be f showering with a finger condom or something, you know, stuff like that. Um, and somebody showed up and said, I have the power to heal that. I'll touch it if you'll give me $12, and it'll be like you never did it. Well, if you weren't hallucinating and it worked, you'd give the guy 12 bucks. You wouldn't even think about not giving him 12 bucks. That's cheap. Well, this glove can prevent that. There's a third kind. I have three people that I've met in my life. Two were physicians. Both of the physicians were surgeons. And one was a musician. Both of them, all three of them severely cut one of their hands while working with kitchen knives. All three of them destroyed their careers. They destroyed their careers. They were never able to really practice their professions again one surgeon retired uh, sold out his business and retired another surgeon basically became a general practitioner and makes a lot less money and a musician basically gave up because he couldn't it was a guitarist and he he damaged nerve damage and tendon damage in his left hand and was unable to really play he can play okay but he can't play at that level anymore so there's life altering Uh, knives are serious things. Cutting into cartilage, cutting into tendons. I mean, it can be serious. It's a $12 glove, guys. Preparedness is as much about preparing for things that go wrong as preventing things from going wrong. Now, let's again, let's go back to the, uh, the ruin your day one that has to go to the emergency room. Imagine this happens, uh, and, and then like right after that, boom, the power goes out from the ice storm, and that's why you were cooking stew in the first place because you knew it was going to be cold. And, that, and now you've got the power out, you've got an ice storm, and you've got a finger that, that needs stitches, and you need, you see, it's a $12 glove. Get these, get something, use them when you're working with sharp knives in the kitchen. Am I going to say that every time I use a knife in the kitchen, I put a, a, a glove on? No, I don't. Um, I'm also fairly skilled with knives, but if I'm doing anything that's slippery, if I'm going to use a mandolin, uh, if I'm doing any kind of really, yeah, it's just smart guys. It really is. Um, it's probably more, more likely to save you from an injury than a helmet is on a bicycle. Uh, really. Anyway. Tspaz.com for all your Amazon shopping. Another quick announcement. Tomorrow we have a PETV presentation, episode 12 with Rob Avitz. It's going to be on um, 
Resilient Homes and Homesteads. This is a Resilient Home and Homestead workshop based on a permaculture engineer's perspective. So Rom is both a permaculture PDC holder and a actual professional engineer. He's going to uh, do about a one-hour presentation on developing resilient homesteads. That presentation is given live for free at PETV. There's a post on the blog about it today. And, of course, you can always purchase presentations for three bucks at PETV if you've missed the live versions of them. And we will have a subscription service for that coming soon. Also, another quick announcement for those coming to the October workshop. I put out a post today that has the uh, group hotel information. Uh, group, If you're going to want to stay in a hotel, most students uh, camp, but a few people do want to get hotels, so we get you guys a group rate. I think I got you guys a rate of like 87 bucks. Uh, for a king or queen bed, depending on which rooms are available when you call in. Uh, you have until September 26th to claim your room. If you want to be guaranteed a room after that date, they will honor the rate, but they won't guarantee the room will be available. So that went out today as well. So that brings us up to today's closing song. And as you might imagine, it's very closely tied to 9-11. This is uh, by Alan Jackson. I think he wrote this a day or two after uh, the event, and they had the Country Music Awards, and he came out and sang the song for the very first time in public, like, while those buildings were still smoking. And um, it's not political. Some of the stuff that's come out has been political one way or the other. It's not a war anthem. It's not about the people that did it. Well, the people that didn't do it, depending on what you believe. It's about the fact that it happened, and it's about us. It's called "Where Were You?" Where were you the day the world stopped? You know, the, the day the world stopped turning on that September day. Um, like I said, I told you my story, so you, you know my story. I'd like to hear yours. So, if you come to the the show notes today for episode um, 1868, you can post your story, little or short or long. I think it actually is a very cathartic thing 15 years later to uh, to be able to talk about where you were. And I think if we get enough of you guys doing it that you can go through and read other people's stories, you understand that we're really all together in this. And that's an important thing to realize, that we are all together in this. Like I said in the past, we call wars civil wars when it's brother against brother. But the truth is every war that's ever been fought in history has been a civil war because we are a part of the brotherhood of man. And it's it's up to us to do everything that we can to avoid conflict. And then if there is to be conflict, to win decisive, quickly, uh, with minimal loss of life on either side. It should only be in defense. As I've said before, it's, it's interesting that in, in, in tribal societies, warfare is inherently limited because it affects everybody equally. But here, it affects people very disproportionately. This event, regardless of exactly how and why it happened, has been used to justify a decade and a half of global warfare. And the world is not safer for it. The only... The only thing that we have from it, I think, is some of the stuff in this song. When people turned on I Love Lucy reruns, when people spent more time talking to each other, when people made more phone calls than any time in living history, when people were more concerned about just being with each other than they were about what we're going to do about it. That came later. That came later. 
what we were worried about initially was the people that were lost, their families, and taking care of each other. Listen to this song. Remember where you were. Don't let it be political this week because they're going to keep pouring it on. Let it be about your fellow Americans and your brothers and sisters all around the world. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? Were you in the yard with your wife and children or working on some stage in L.A.? Did you stand there in shock at the sight of that black smoke rising against that blue sky? Did you shout out in anger and fear for your neighbor? Or did you just sit down and cry? Did you weep for the children who lost their dear loved ones? Pray for the ones who don't know. Did you rejoice for the people who walked from the rubble and sob for the ones left below? Did you burst out with pride? red, white, and blue, and the heroes who died just doing what they do. Did you look up to heaven for some kind of answer and look at yourself and what really matters? I'm just a singer of simple songs. I'm not a real political man. I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you difference in Iraq and Iran. But I know Jesus and I talk to God and I remember this from when I was young. Faith, hope, and love are some good things He gave us and the greatest is love. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? Teaching a class full of innocent children Or driving down some cold interstate Did you feel guilty cause you're a survivor? In a crowded room did you feel alone? Did you call up your mother and tell her you loved her? Did you dust off that Bible at home? Did you open your eyes and hope it never happened? Close your eyes and not go to sleep. Did you notice the sunset the first time in ages? Or speak to some stranger on the street. Did you lay down at night and think of tomorrow? Go out and buy you a gun. Did you turn off that violent old movie you're watching? Turn on out of Lucy reruns. Did you go to a church and hold hands with some strangers? Stand in line and give your own blood. Did you just stay home and cling tight to your family? Thank God you had somebody to love. I'm just a singer of simple songs. I'm not a real political man. I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you the difference in Iraq and Iran. But 
But I know Jesus and I talk to God And I remember this from when I was young Faith, hope and love are some good things He gave us And the greatest is love I'm just a singer of simple songs I'm not a real political man I watch CNN but I'm not sure I can tell you The difference in our rock and our red But I know Jesus and I talk to God And I remember this from when I was young Faith, hope and love are some good things He gave us And the greatest is love And the greatest is love Greatest is love. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September? 